Hello, beautiful people. This is Shaylin Foster, and welcome to another episode of Interior Motives. Today's conversation is with an extraordinary educator and innovator of excellence in urban education, Dr. Marco Clark. So take a moment, relax, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, and let's talk. Dr. Marco Clark is a well-respected educator, forward-thinking innovator, exemplary author, polarizing public speaker, and veteran in the world of urban education. Dr. Clark currently serves as the founder and chief executive officer of the Richard Wright Public Charter School for Journalism and Media Arts in Washington, D.C. Dr. Clark has been featured in Jet Magazine, The Huffington Post, The New York Times, discussing his own personal battles with reading as a youth and his educational reform efforts to fight against world illiteracy and community issues throughout the country. Many political figures have acknowledged Dr. Clark's ability to offer a fresh mix of traditional and contemporary approaches to motivating troubled youth and mobilizing communities. Historical icon, the late Congressman John Lewis, exhorted Dr. Clark's unique ability to identify with students sparking their desire to achieve. Dr. Clark has received numerous awards and appeared on hundreds of talk shows, as well as serving as a keynote speaker in various venues across the country. Dr. Clark is also a proud HBCU alumnus and a proud member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated and a continued advocate for educational and social change. His mantra for life is, you can't beat a person who is determined to win. So without further ado, please give it up for this extraordinary visionary, Dr. Marco Clark. How are you doing? Oh man, what a night. But anyway, how are you? Good, good. I'm so happy that you have taken time out of your busy, busy schedule to join me on the pod today. I am so happy to have you. I am happy to be on here. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, happy uh, new year. Happy 2021. How have you been? There's been a lot going on in the world and uh, I'm sure at your, your school and just kind of in your life. How have you been coping with all the the changes and the transitions? Well, you know, Happy New Year to you. And thank you for all of your energy and your podcast has been going fantastic since you got going. And and so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're doing well, your family's well. On my end, all has been going well. Some challenging situations, challenging days, especially being in the nation's capital, and having to deal with all of the politics. But I'm thankful that that things have been going well as a whole. Um, There hasn't been a lot of tragedy around me. There's been a lot of challenges, but the tragedies hadn't happened, and I'm thankful for that. And so we are able to continue pushing on. And I'm looking forward to this new year. So uh, with great energy and aspirations. That's awesome. That's good to hear, you know, because it could be a lot different in terms of, you know, dealing with tragedies. So um, I'm happy to, to hear that even though you've had challenges, you're still progressing and moving forward and you're hopeful. I 
again, I'm I'm so thrilled to have you. It's it's been a while in the making to set this up. I know schedules have not been completely in alignment. However, you're here today and I am impressed and have been incredibly what's the word? What's the word that can encapsulate such an extraordinary career? I guess I'm in awe of you've had such an incredible extraordinary career in education. And uh, I really want to kind of go back in time and just kind of talk about uh, your beginnings. You know, you're from the city of brotherly love, Philly. So, so, so take us back, take the, the listeners back and, and kind of tell us where it all began. Every time I think about the city of brotherly love is with fond memories and and the energy around the community and around people that connected to help give you strength and to actually teach you things, whether they were good or bad. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that you could learn from those beginnings. The, the, the idea of what a neighborhood was and understanding that you knew your neighbor next door, you could go get an, an, an orange or an egg. You could get right. uh, some salt or some pepper they knew your name and they knew exactly things about you that sort of girded the direction of, of my life. Things have, have not come easy. You use the word extraordinary, which I appreciate. Uh, I take the compliment, but it has not been without uh, many challenges. And those challenges have taught me a lot of different things, things about perseverance and, and, and just ensuring that I would stay mission focused, that my mission would not be trampled by uh, challenges that would try to derail my direction and also understanding clearly that the mission has to be bigger than anything that comes in between it. And so you learn a lot in, in the city of brotherly love, how to be tough. You know, you learn how to uh, stand strong mm-hmm. and, and to make sure that you could either be a part of elements or you could create the element and create something that people could look back at from years to come. Right, right. Wow. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about your family background, uh, Marco. You know, I came from a, uh, a two parent household, mother, father, mm-hmm. uh, where mom was the, the, uh, the director and dad was the, was the, uh, <laughs> uh, he was the enforcer. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I think it, in having that structure and being in an environment that could have gone in several different ways was because of them that, and, and them keeping me accountable made a difference in everything that, that happened in my life. I, I, I all often look at the, the direction not that happened with me in, in school. Mm-hmm. At 10 years old, I was a spelling bee champion. At 11 years old, I was told I was functional illiterate. And because of the fact that I had this undowing support from my parents, mm-hmm. that kept me in line because I started to live out the label, even though it was a misdiagnosis of a, a uh, guidance counselor mm-hmm. that did not really take the time to understand an urban child. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was because of my parents saying, you can continue, you can do this, you can be better, mm-hmm. that it kept me sort of in line because I recognized I still had to be accountable to them. Mm-hmm. The interesting dynamic is, is that I, in being accountable to them, I still lived out the label, which uh, ultimately put me behind in school. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. My grade point average was low. I graduated from high school in five years instead of four. I scored a one uh, 480 on an SAT, and I graduated with a 1.6 grade average mm-hmm. from high school. And But I can only imagine what would have happened had I not had some accountability and those fine lines of enforcement from dad and, and the punishments from mom mm-hmm. that, that sort of kept me in line to even put me in a position that I can move forward. Mm, pretty powerful. But tell, tell me more about the, the label and, and how it played out. Cause I'm just like kind of sitting here, like you, you said that you won the spelling bee at age of what, 11? 10. 10. I won the spelling bee at age 10. And you had been diagnosed or tell me about that. How did that happen in terms of this whole functional illiterate label? What what was interesting is that I was a kid and, and I'm still a kid that loves words. I, I'm just a bigger kid now, older kid, but I still love words. And I had this affinity mm. for words. I could spell mm-hmm. just about anything. And, you know, the spelling bee gave me a thirst of energy. It made me feel like I was smart. It made me feel that that I could conquer anything academically. It, it, it nourished the, the, the energy I had for learning mm-hmm. and, and academics. And so I walked into the sixth grade feeling like I was one of the smartest kids mm-hmm. in the building. But we often, one of the things as an educator now that I recognize is that we can't, we have to change the, the label of, of who finishes first because the idea of who finished an, an assessment first is typically the one who's the smartest. And so we took a mm-hmm. state assessment and the state assessment, I wanted to be the first mm-hmm. one finished in the class. So a couple of friends are, and uh, we sat and we created the scheme that we were going to race to finish the assessment fast, not recognizing or understanding, I should say, that by by just bubbling in mm-hmm. the, the bubbles <laughs> would not guarantee success. I had no idea that doing poorly on an assessment would actually uh, create a label for me. And so we took the state assessment and we just kind of played tic-tac-toe. We, we bubbled all the way through to see right. who would finish. And it re- as a result of the state assessment is where the guidance counselor made her diagnosis. Clearly, she was wrong because she never asked the question, how did we get here, or even provide an a antidote to curve or to fix the issue. It was rather, let me na- label you as this and to begin to look at how we can move you from one level to another. Mm, wow. Wow. And that was at a time, was it a, um, a diagnostician or, or guidance counselor? Or were they doing kind of dual roles at the time? Because I know things have changed, evolved. It was a- guidance counselor. Uh, it was a guidance counselor who read it. I'm not really certain was a guidance counselor who gave the information and who was the one who to deliver the information mm-hmm. to me. And um, and you said that that was, what was the, the demographics of your school at that time? Uh, virtually 100% African-American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do you think, um, you said the label played out kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, kind of like you, you're telling me that I'm, I'm, have this deficit or I'm less than, or I'm not capable. So how did that, how did that uh, play out in terms of your internal dialogue with yourself? You know, it was interesting. As I walked into the sixth grade feeling smart and bright, I walked into the seventh grade feeling defeated. 
I felt like I wasn't the student that I thought I could be. And so, you know, if, if once I understood what uh, functional illiteracy was, because interesting on that day, as excited as I was about education, I didn't under I didn't know what functional illiteracy was. I, I thought actually it was a big word that maybe you wanted me to spell it or maybe you were gonna give me a certificate because you had heard I was this great speller, you know, and it wasn't until mom walked in about a half hour later after me being uh, having to sit in, in a chair just waiting with no direction that I started to ponder whether or not it was something I had actually done wrong. I was a mischievous kid. Mm. So as typical right. boys, you're a mischievous kid. You do things. Wait, it's hard to believe that you were mischievous. I was a mischievous kid. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I did things sometimes that, uh, you know, boys at 10 or 11 would do. You know, I threw rocks and 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 I broke bottles. You know, things were whatever that, that was right. pranks that a, a kid would do. And, and I started to wonder, like, you know, what did I, what, you know, what, what have I done? What is mom here? What, what in the world? And, and, and it wasn't until we got home and, and mom still refused to talk to me. And, and I go back mm -hmm. to say that, that remember dad was the enforcer. And when she said, we're going to mm -hmm. wait until your dad gets home from work, I, I started to tremble on the inside because I thought it was something that I, was going to be in trouble for and that dad was she was waiting for him to come and to enforce the law in the house and so uh when they explained what that functional literacy was i i, I really became demoralized and that that i had as far as wanting to be in school and wanting to be a part of this it, it diminished and so i started to live out the label so because people who are functional literacy they can't you're saying they they're not they're not capable of learning or they're not going to be great students or they're not smart. So let me be cool. And the cool situation was, let me fight. Let me uh, create habit. Let me do things that would continually, continuously get me in the office. You would know me from a different perspective. Where I walked in wanting you to know me from academics, I decided that you would know me for something else. Right, right. Which is so, you know, unfortunately common you know, with a lot of our boys of color, African-American boys or Black boys, just this disproportionate number of young men that, that may have undiagnosed learning disabilities or just not, it, it may not even be a learning disability. It just may be that someone has not taken the time to do a thorough assessment of the talents, their learning styles, or what will be the catalyst to spark that, that desire and that motivation. Um, it could be lack of resources. There could be so many factors. And so, so many of our boys end up in the office or end up in, in school suspension or end up in alternative placement. As an educator and someone who has done the research and have has uh, really blazed the trail. What do you say? What do you say to, to folks out there, to educators and administrators and, and folks in positions to make some really profound decisions for our young folks? You know, as a, a drum major for academic excellence, mm -hmm. there's one motion that I often say to everyone is that you can't make decisions without the child. 
you have to ask questions. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the biggest mistakes that educators make is that we make determinations about things and we never ask the question why. We never talk to the child. So the student's voice is always left out. I, I, I've replayed my scenario for years. What could have happened had that guidance counselor asked the question, what happened on that day? You know, your test score showed you didn't do very well. So what took place? And, and it would have come out exactly what the issues were. And I'm a proponent of redo, meaning that you have an opportunity because there's a lot of us that never would have graduated from college without the ability to redo papers and redo assignments and redo assessments. That I think in early on K through 12, we do a, a very disservice to our children because many of them don't have that opportunity. It's perfection the first time. And if that doesn't happen, then they are met with less than success. And so uh, as, I, as I push through and, and ask this, student voice has to be a part of it. One of, one of the major things that has made me successful in what I've done as an educator is that I have designed a program to educate children through their lens rather than through the lens of the adult. Uh, and, and, and as we do that, we, we have seen more success in, in working with students, not just in K-12, but when they graduate and what they've moved on to do in their lives moving forward. Wow. Wow. That's, that's extremely just powerful and profound because I think you, I mean, absolutely correct. You know, just, just that, I mean, that was literally that day for you was literally like a sliding door moment not realizing that that guidance counselor, the person that was uh, making that assessment of you, had they have dug deeper and really gave you a voice, that that could have truly changed the trajectory of your outcome. But at the same time, do you think that that, that particular moment and how it played out in your life, do you feel like that, that particular thing that seemed like a great failure perhaps may have turned into your superpower? I, I believe that I was one that survived it. And, and it's almost like a person that, that, that jumps in the middle of the ocean. You know, if there's 10 individuals there and nine get eaten by sharks and one survive, do we get excited about the one that survived? Or do we, you know, figure out how to ensure that the other nine aren't tragically met anymore? And so uh, while we're thankful for the, the number 10 that did not get eaten, uh, the, number, the, the nine of them that were slaughtered are the ones that we really have to look at. And so I think I had the luck of the draw because, again, I had parents who continuously held a level of accountability regardless of my state of mind and my actions. I still was accountable. So even if I didn't do the work in school, I was punished at home. If I and once I got off punishment, whenever I did something else, I was punished again. I was spoken to. There was a lot of conversations around my actions. So what about the other nine that that don't have that ability? Right. And so while I had developed some level of tenacity that was within me, God gave me some tenacity to push through things is what got me an opportunity to college. You know, with a poor grade point average, I was rejected to over 150 colleges and universities. 
not even given a shot. And because of a dean at my university, I had an opportunity to call, get him on the phone by the luck of the draw, that I was able to speak with him. And he's he, he was very in, enlightened by the conversation of, of my what I admitted uh, of the things that I did to make my educational journey detriment. So I owned it, but that wasn't good enough. He wanted me to put it in writing because he wanted to see whether or not I had the, the, the ability to actually have a chance. And uh, so I wrote this long letter and I sent it to the dean and I had to sit and wait and wait. Um, I never got a call back from the dean. And, and it was nearing the time that folks were starting to get ready to leave for college. You know, that back then in the 80s, you could, you know, you dial someone's number and sometimes people would pick up at the same time. So it didn't ring. I don't know. Uh, I don't know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, once upon a time, the, the, that happened and I kept calling this dean and I couldn't get a call back and I was almost ready to give up. And that particular Friday, I happened to call and he picked up thinking he was making another call and got me on the phone. Mm -hmm. And he gave me an opportunity right then that he would have me a conditional uh, acceptance. And that started my educational journey beyond K-12. Wow. Wow. What a day. <laughs> How did you feel? I was joyous, very excited, thinking about the possibilities, but also nervous because I recognized within myself by living on a label that I actually put myself behind. So what was gonna happen when I walked on the campus? When I got on the campus, those things and those thoughts came true that I really was behind and I was nervous. And it seemed like everyone around me knew everything, a lot more than me. And as an educator now, it's another misnomer that I've worked to take away from folks. It's not the more you study or the longer you study, the more you'll know or retain, it's how you study. And I found myself reading, studying and all of that, and I could not comprehend the work. And so when I got on the campus, it was as if I had never studied at all. Wow, wow. So t take me back just a little bit. Um, tell me a little bit more about um, your parents. Now, you said your dad was an enforcer and, um, mom supportive and they held you accountable. What did that, how, how did that play out in high school in terms of just kind of, and what are, what were some of the, the values and the morals that they, you know, upheld in your household? Oh, I, I grew up a kid uh, in church. I grew up a kid that with traditional black values, black family values, grew up with the the direction of, you know, working hard and earning everything that you have. I grew up with the value of nurturing and the fact that, you know, when you create problems, you solve them or you work diligently. And and uh, that a friend, is, if you're a friend and you're a true friend, grew up with the, you know, doing Easter verses on Sundays in, in, in Easter. <laughs> and so I had a, a traditional upbringing of a two-parent household that uh, dad was there, mom was there, and it, it was never uh, a moment. Matter of fact, I, I can't really remember a moment of them not being there. It was times that I wanted them to go out, and they never did. They they were always there. Uh, and so just a traditional family household. 
So, you know, in terms of in high school, like what were your involvements in terms of extracurricular activities and other things that kind of really um, helped ground you? Well, I played football in high school and and I worked a job. You know, I had a part-time job and who was your part-time job? I worked at Roy Rogers and, and KFC. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they, 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 that was a requirement. You know, okay. uh, my dad was serious about uh, having a part time job. So if it wasn't sports season, you were working. Laying around the house was not something that you could do. That was an option. So your dad had a strong work ethic. Strong work ethic uh, on Saturdays. Even if you were off my mom, it was I don't care how you stayed out. You were not going to sleep all day you're gonna get out of that bed the only time you're gonna remain in the bed a little later is if i work and closed and didn't get home until you're late then they allow maybe a couple hours but sleeping in our house all day was not uh, it was not going to happen and there were chores that were required and that was the way it was Okay. Okay. Now, were you the only child or did you have a sibling? I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. as I have two brothers uh, who are uh, six and seven years older than me. So in a sense, I um, was sort of like the only child. I had a cousin that we are six months apart and we really grew up as brothers because we went to school together. We were in the same grade together. We got in a lot of trouble together. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we, we were very, very close because of our age. And, and he happened to be an only child. So we were brothers, basically. We, we're mm -hmm. brothers. Yeah. Have mm -hmm. y'all still close even to this day? Very close. Still mm -hmm. very close to this day. What's his name? His name is Ralph. Hi, Ralph. <laughs> give Ralph a shout out. Yeah, okay. give Ralph a shout out. That's my, that's my guy right there. Cool. Cool. So, okay. Very strong parenting, which is, which is wonderful. Um, and, and certainly nothing to be taken for granted because there's a lot of us that grew up perhaps that didn't have uh, two parents in the household, or if we did, we were more so latchkey kids, you know, kind of, uh -huh. you know, fending while our parents worked and what whatnot. But it sounds like you were surrounded by that support. And so, so what was, what was the message about higher learning from your parents? The goal was for me to, to reach and attain a, a, a college degree while I was still young. My parents had some college experience, mom, into college and, you know, and, and while she was young, but the, the goal was for me to go and have the whole collegiate experience and to, to, to take on that is what the goal was. They had to get their education and collegiate, you know, while working and trying to raise a family, you know, which was a lot different than, than what they wanted for me. Right. So take me to your, uh, kind of your campus life, you know, describe what that looked like. And this was at CAU, formerly known as Clark College. Am I yes. correct? Yes. You know, the, the, I, I, what I'll just say about college uh, is, in a whole nutshell, is, is that it created uh, lifelong friends. Uh, I had an amazing time in, as a student. At an amazing time, learning and growing from individuals created friends that, that are lifelong. 
uh, friends that uh, that have now been a part of my life for more than half my life. And it's just amazing that the, the vice the vice president of my board of trustees for my charter schools organization was my college roommate. It, it, it's amazing oh, wow. that, that we did everything together. We, we've seen a lot of things happen for each other. And, and that collegiate time was amazing. It grew you as a person. It truly was a different world. It really, it really <laughs> was. It really was. <laughs> so how many times did you go to Steve? Uh, as many times as my pockets could handle <laughs> the cost. But... Uh, <laughs> Steagles was an amazing place, and and it's it's a staple. I, I wish someone would bring Steagles back. Uh, that you know the AU Center misses that, you know yeah. those greasy burgers and and but the and and the wings on wheat and the wings on wheat and the grilled cheese that you know that that yes. that those things were 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 amazing, and uh, but the campus taught me a lot about myself, that mm-hmm. to endure things as a great soldier. And to that, I could overcome challenges uh, that were there. And the greatest thing about being on the campus at the time that I was there was that everyone was broke. And so, <laughs> now there was now there was some, there was some folks was that was driving. Experience. They they was driving some rides, yeah, you it, know. It, it was, I was like, you know, somebody got some some deep pockets, but it, it wasn't me. It was it wasn't me, and and it was a so it was a few exceptions to the rule, but they were the exception not the majority. Right. So the reality is that even though they had it all, they still had to be with the crowd who didn't have. So it was it was that kind of a uh, uh, group. And I think that brought about, about a unified uh, place that mm-hmm. helped us grow. And when we look back at many of our classmates that were there, everyone's pretty much done great in their lives. And 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 they went from from not having to having and, and to being these these amazing people that have been change agents across the, the globe. And and so for that, that's my collegiate experience that I think really has helped me and, and guide me, you know, through some of my daily walks now. So yeah, HBCU life, such a rich experience. So at what point do you feel like you really caught your stride in terms of, you know, the study habits and academia and, you know, kind of figured out your trajectory in terms of where you wanted to steer your career? I, I caught my stride uh, when I wanted to give up. And mm-hmm. it was interesting that um, one of the advisors who was still very dear in my heart today Dr. Johnny Wilson, who was uh, my advisor in the political science department, was responsible for, I went to him one day because of an incident that had happened in biology class. We had, a, I'd never been in a, a, a hall, a, a classroom hall where you had over a hundred kids in one class. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was overwhelming for me. And but I noticed there was a strategy to the way that the professor taught. On Mondays, he seemed to call on one side of the room. On Wednesdays, he would call a different side of the room. And on, on Friday, he would call a different side of the room. So I figured the strategy out because it was biology. It was one of the toughest classes I had. And so I would sit on the opposite side of the classroom and my strategy worked very well. All until I until this one girl got in my way. It was one young lady that I've been trying to meet for a long time. And I happened to see her on my way to class, which caused me to get to class late. Now, I did meet her, but I was late to class. 
And uh, <laughs> I got called out uh, in class that particular day. And um, I had to go up to the board. He asked questions. I was supposed to work out a work out a problem on the board, and I couldn't do it. And in the back, I, I just I could hear people. Now, whether they were making these gestures at me or not, mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if it was just something I had built up in my mind. But I started hearing things like "stupid," "you don't know," "what are you doing?" And for that moment, I fell into a daze where actually people didn't know, but I was crying on the other side. I had my back turned to everyone, but I was crying. The actual at the class, I was still standing there, and I noticed everybody was leaving out, and I was still looking at the board. The professor told me I needed to see him in his office. Well, I went to my advisor first, and my advisor said, which was Dr. Wilson. And I told him that I was leaving. I said, and I explained everything that had transpired prior to me getting there again to him. And I said, I'm leaving campus. I'm not cut out. They were right. The lady was right. He told me I was wrong. The issue was that I didn't have an issue with comprehension or knowing how to do it. I had an issue with the way that I studied. And my comprehension was I needed to be able to chunk things rather than try to read large passages. So the, the highlighter became my best friend and writing in books became my best friend. And from that moment, he got me tutors for every class, which folks didn't know I had a tutor for every class because I was so cool. I didn't let people know that. I just kind of walked off yeah. right, and went right. to my tutors for every class. And I caught my stride then because once I got with the tutors and started with my highlighter, everything mm -hmm. became clear to me. And I started rolling through those classes, ace in those classes like none other. And I had finally gotten it. And so I realized that my direction needed to be about educating and educating young people who were in the same situation as me. And so it was in that moment where you realized your purpose? In that moment, I did. Because that had been my major struggle uh, the whole time. Wow. Wow. What an extraordinary moment, uh, definitely, indeed. Uh, and so as you kind of moved in your career, I, I've joked with you before about having like about 20 degrees. <laughs> so um, at what point did you end up pursuing your, your doctorate degree? I pursued my doctorate degree after meeting a mentor that I work for who was an extraordinary leader. I was working as a, as a teacher, uh, and this gentleman happened to be a principal of a, another school, uh, high school. I was working at a middle school, and I kept hearing his name. And folks would say, you remind me of Dr. Andre Bunley. And I kept wondering, who was Dr. Andre Bunley? And I, I happened to run into him one time at a, at a a meeting and I heard him speak and I, I said, wow, we do have a lot in common. I can see how people are saying that. They were talking about how he could command the children and command things and that his heart was in it. And so I got a chance to get to know him by uh, inviting him to come speak at a black history program that I was in charge of at the middle school. Mm -hmm. And I just found it so fascinating that here was this young guy who was at the time only about 30 years old or a little over 30. And they kept calling him Dr. Bunley, Dr. Bunley. And I just thought that was so fascinating because I never knew how do you get a doctorate degree? I had no idea what it was about a doctorate. And 
we met and clicked and I asked him if I could come work for him. And so the following year I transferred schools and went and worked for him. And he began to mentor me and, and tell me that I needed to get the doctorate. And I was like, yes. So I found a program, got involved with uh, a higher education. And, uh, and that's what my doctorate degree is in higher education leadership, uh, because I wanted to break the gap that goes between K-12 and higher education and understanding what kids need to do in K-12 in order to be successful in higher education. And so that's how I got into the journey of becoming a, um, getting my doctorate degree. And the and most interesting thing is that he was the youngest African-American person to become uh, a principal in Baltimore and the uh, youngest African-American to gain his doctorate degree at 28 years old. I became the second youngest yeah. principal in Baltimore and the second youngest to get his doctorate at 35. Awesome. That is uh, quite the accomplishment. Wow. And just, and, and, you know, really the power mm -hmm. of mentorship. I can't, you know, stress enough how important that truly is, particularly for our people in terms of just having folks that we can aspire to in terms of kind of helping us navigate these uh, tough waters in, in terms of our career and our education. So are, would you say that there are some other inspirations that you've had along the way and who might they be? Dr. Freeman Rabowski, president of University of Maryland, Baltimore County, a renowned African-American president of a honors, uh, predominantly white institution is amazing. Dr. Christine Johnson McPhail, who was the coordinator and the chair of uh, my doctoral program and the chair of my dissertation committee. It's a phenomenal uh, person uh, and, and educator leader, Dr. Kelly Costner, who uh, uh, mentored me and helped me and worked with me uh, in a lot of aspects. Just to name a few, I mean, I have tons of, of mentors, Dr. Walter Ampre, who uh, happened to be the superintendent of uh, a school district and went on to hold a, a, a major executive search firm for educational leaders throughout the country. Uh, Marcia Dyson, who is, is a mentor of mine, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, who is one of my great mentors, and we talk about race relations and education. Just tons of, of individuals who have become my mentors over the years, who have developed me and continue to mentor me through our process. I I am only as good as, as those who are around me and the company that I keep and, and understanding that uh, they say birds of a feather flock together. And I've tried to associate with the right birds and those birds who like to soar. Eagles are, are basically my favorite birds, but I, I and so I, I, if <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you could just soar like an eagle, you never come down. To, to, to hold anything or people will be afraid of what happens. And so I am just thankful mm -hmm. for the fact of great mentorship because like you said, it's this needed and it doesn't stop because of whatever you accomplish. Every person who is great continues to have a mentor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So another, speaking of another mentor, there was the recent death of extraordinary educator, Joe Clark. How did his voice impact you as a young educator? 
You know, as an extended family family member, Joe Clark was, we talked often and his words were so exhilarating. You know, people never got a, a lot of folks didn't know that his vocabulary was so rich and we have a lot of the same story that he fell in love with words. Uh, he just had the ability to use them in a different way than I would, but Nonetheless, he was extraordinary with his resilience and, and belief in, 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 in completing a mission, uh, regardless of what it takes. His mission was bigger than the challenges. And, and, and he was very direct in everything that he would talk about. And if he didn't want to do it, he just wouldn't do it. So we, you, res- you learn to respect people who are, some folks don't like people that speak their mind, but you also learn to respect them when they speak their mind because what else do you want from people other than not to have to guess? And so that is a tragic loss that we had. And not only him, his wife was uh, phenomenal. And unfortunately, we lost her last year. And so two extraordinary individuals, but his voice is going to ring forever. And a lot of, of the things I've been able to accomplish has been because of Dr. Joe Clark and some of his his information in our talks. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can't really say enough about just kind of his his impact and his legacy as it relates to kind of just kind of showing an example of a strong Black man and a strong administrator, especially during some of the times that we have kind of come upon over the years, um, and particularly for um, urban schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, mm-hmm. you know, just the power of having a Black man and a Black woman in leadership, I can't say enough how powerful it, it really is. And even for myself working at an urban school, having leaders that are talking the talk and walking the walk, but being forceful and being firm, but yet loving at the same time, it's, it's, it's powerful because a lot of our children who may be lacking some of that in their, their households or in their families, sometimes we don't realize how much of a divine appointment that we have in the work that we do. And so uh, he definitely was definitely a, a great uh, example of that, how he took being an administrator and, and kind of steps outside the box. It was more than just leading. It was almost like, you know, wearing multiple hats, a father, an uncle, a, uh, a mentor, uh, all those things. Do you find that you have to do that or you have kind of or that you have multiple roles in? You know, as one of the things as a leader is that if, if, a, if a leader ever states that they have to lead from the front, then they're not leaders. You know, great leaders lead from the front, they lead from the back, they lead from the side, they lead in any direction it takes to get the job done. And, and also great leaders will lead in a position where they lead from the back because they're promoting someone else to show their worth and they're supporting them. So they're leading not only from the front, they're leading from the back because as a person who is pushing someone along and guiding them as a coach is still leading. And so from the vantage point that I have, I am open to all mentorship. I'm open. I have kids that are involved with outside sports or church activities. I show up. I have kids who may be a part of or or have something spectacular that they're doing 
volunteering at their church or whatever, I show up and support in order to gain uh, support of people and, and, and understanding that they know that you're that they are more to you than them being a student or them being an employee. You have to show them that whatever that they have a value is of a value to you as well. And so if it's important to you, then I should show up for you. And that is something that I have prided myself on doing, knowing that I have people who now on social media that I've taught that are now in their 40s will come back and still say, you know, hey, this is what you've done. I still, it's because of you, it says a lot. I don't have that in, in looking back in my lifetime and looking at the educators outside of those that were on a collegiate level that that I could actually feel that way about. And so that's the reason why it's so important for a leader to understand that you you wear many hats. You are a social worker, you are a minister, you are a doctor, you are a nurse, you are a coach. You you are all wrapped into everything that they need and remembering that you signed the application to do that. No one broke or something over your head to do it. So that's so important. And and that's what I've lived my career by and knowing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you had a relationship with the, the late, great and prolific John Lewis. Talk to me about a little bit about that relationship and what he imparted to you. One of the most nurturing individuals that you would ever meet, uplifting, exhilarating, purposeful, forward thinking individuals that you could ever meet. And he did it with a, a sense of, of toughness, class, and nurturing all together. You never really knew the difference. It, it was like, and not to liken him to a, a woman, but to say he's more like, you know, you think about your grandmother, you know, they were tough and nurturing. They said things to you that no one else could say to you. And they did it with something that when you walked away, you still felt good about yourself. He was that kind of individual that he could talk about not being afraid, but at the same time, letting you know it's okay to be afraid. He could talk to you about the fact that you may not win the game or you may not win or everything you do, but you still won because you tried. Those are the kinds of attributes that uh, Congressman Lewis walked away with. And, and he would always never give up, never give in. And, and that was, a, it, at the end of the day, that was about completing your mission. The thing that, one of the things that he happened to find out what my motto was, he was just so enlightened. And he never, he, he found out that my motto is you can't be the person who's determined to win. Well, it aligned, it's just so happened, it aligned to what he said, never give up and never give in. And so th the relationship and the connection with Congressman John Lewis is one that will always be cherished. It's one that uh, not only did he share with me, but he shared with the students and took time to spend time with them, to come and talk to them. And of course, you know, he was older. Some kids didn't get it, but they were very respectful and, and very excited about the fact that this great icon walked with Dr. King and that he took time to be with them. Mm, yeah, yeah, he will definitely uh, continue to be missed extraordinary legacy. How would you say that your background as an educator, as well as your personal background, informed your efforts in advocating for students and encouraging parents, their parents, to be accountable, particularly in our Black and Brown communities? Well, I speak from 
total experience. I've been there, done that. And, 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 as, a, <laughs> and as a parent, I, I'm serious about the direction. Uh, a lot of times I use my, my own uh, child as a, I shouldn't say prop, but as a prop because she speaks the same language. My expectations for them is the same expectations I have for her. And it's nothing less. And so my mantra is, if it's not good enough for my child, why should it be good enough for yours? And so we push with the same method and I operate with my staff the same way. And I have no issues with telling them this is not good enough for my child. So why is it good enough for anyone else? And if that's not the case, that is the level of which I grade everything. If it's something I want my child to be and, and would feel comfortable with my child, then I'm good with it. But if it's not, then it's not good enough for me. And so in, when it comes to talking with parents, I'm straight with them. I don't cut corners with them. If I don't like something or I feel like they're not involved enough, I tell them. If it's something that I think that they have not, uh, if we have PTA and they don't show up on PTA, if I call them, they don't call me back. When they call me for something, I call them on it. The reality is, is that I think we cannot sugarcoat. My book was called Parents, Where Are You? The Kids Are Out of Control. That was a call to action for parents. That was me putting it right in their face that I don't believe you're doing as much as you could do. Some people were afraid to say those kinds of things as educators, but I'm not. And so that is the direction that I believe and that has guided what I do. I mean, that's a pretty cutting edge and direct approach, you know, kind of a tough love approach. Have you ever, you know, met some opposition from parents uh, that kind of felt let me some kind of way? I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I had a few. I think I had a few, you know, uh, opposition, parents on the opposite side. I think I just had a few. But in all actuality, the good has outweighed the bad as far as uh, I've built tremendous relationships with parents, tremendous relationships with community uh, stakeholders and community and tremendous support from the outpouring of kids telling their parents to get on board. So, yeah, we've had a, a, those who are just want, you know, want to be recalcitrant and you're going to have those. But we also have had the greater good has outweighed the bad. And that's the way that I operate, that good will trump bad at all times if you are sincere in what you're doing. Right, right. And it sounds like your focus has been so much put on building relationships and building trust. It, it is so important. When people trust you, they do. When people believe that you are into their lives, uh, they do. That's what a two-way relationship is about. If I pour into you, then when I have to get you to do something, then you're going to, we have an unwritten relationship that's there. When I start out the year telling my parents, I said, we're, we're married, right? And until we get a divorce, we have a, a, a concrete agreement. It's unwritten. We don't have it on paper, but my expectation is the same that you have of me. I have it of you. And so, the, and that's the expectation. What we're saying with our students is that I tell the students, don't let me have expectations of you and you don't have expectations of me. So there's this reciprocity of expectation exactly. and trust. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty profound. So, you know, there's been a lot going on in the world. And during this pandemic, um, there's been kind of this revolution when it comes to mental health and how we 
deal with, really with everyone, but as it relates to your students and them dealing with the challenges of, you know, the COVID-19 and more isolation and civil unrest that's occurring uh, globally, as well as social media and dealing with comparison culture. How do you, how do you deal with that? What do you, what has been best practices for you as the CEO and founder, as well as educator, as well as kind of what you're encouraging and cultivating in your staff to kind of really bridge the gap in terms of mental health challenges? For your students? We've opened up a channel for students to really share their feelings. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that's been easiest for us is the fact that we never really had to change much. This has always been our approach, was to open up lines of communication so students never felt that they didn't have that sense or, or they couldn't talk about things that were bothering them because that's part of our whole uh, program. And so what we've done is just extend and extend what we've already done and try to, you know, be a little more earful of what students were sharing and, and really guiding them to maintain a different perspective. What we said this year is that we created a, a slogan this year that says, our success is our protest. So we, I, I wanted students to understand that and by us being successful was the biggest protest that you could ever do. I know going out and you wanted to share your feelings, your thoughts, you wanted to get into the, the ideology of they are wrong, they're treating us a certain way. And that was great. And I wanted that to happen. But I also wanted them to understand that if you protest, nothing beats results. And when you have great results, that is how you dispel all of the naysayers. And I think I've lived long enough now that I have some naysayers around me. And what I, the way I combat all of their issues is that I just beat them with results. And that's something that we've always, I've wanted our students to understand. And so we live by that. So our kids understand that we have to work diligently because people are expecting us not to do well because you're doing virtual work. They're expecting you not to be that. You know, they're, they're having conversations saying kids are going to be behind. Well, let's not show them that we're going to be behind. Let's be ahead. Taking what people and doing the opposite of what they believe. If you're going to protest, don't do it with a bottle or a bat. Do it with a book and a brain. And the reality is, is that you're going to gain more from that than you will for that one time moment that you feel great about. Right, right. Absolutely. So in terms of more specifically dealing with students that are struggling with depression and anxiety, self-esteem concerns, how is that addressed in, within your... Well, we have a mental health team that is involved with supporting students. They are having weekly check-ins, in some instances, daily check-ins. We've been doing tons of home visits from social distance perspective, doing uh, those checks to support those students as much as possible. Those have been pretty much the avenues that we've extended a little deeper since we've been on a virtual perspective. I know that prior to virtual, or maybe it was during maybe May or June, during virtual, you started kind of rolling out some of those kind of short films. Yes. 
about student life and some of the challenges. There was just kind of a, a, a litany and a variety of, of topics. And I thought that they were extremely powerful in terms of the visuals and in terms of the messaging. How did that come about? Because I think that there's a lot of campuses and schools that could really benefit from um, those short films. Well, we are a journalism and media arts organization and we create films all the time where our kids have the opportunity to have their own creative juices. And so with that, I think we were able to get the best of the best because the students just wanted to do it. And we felt like that was a great time, the beginning of this pandemic, to roll out an opportunity for people to really look at them. See, we were glad we were able to catch your attention and, and, and those oh, yeah. other individuals who may not or were looking for something uh, of a, a level of support that we could put out those films to kind of help engage and to open up dialogue, uh, not only our school community, but our outside community as well. And, and it worked. And so we were able to share the creativeness and, the, and as well as the context of it all, as well as make new contact, uh, contacts and to gain other supporters that would help support the mission of our students and the challenges that we went through. So that's how that idea came about. And we're going to be rolling out some more as we move into this, this next year uh, of things, because in spite of the pandemic, our students have still been doing films. Awesome. Awesome. Now, will those be available for other campuses and other instructional staff to use? Absolutely. Utilize? They're open. And we actually have a YouTube channel. It's Richard Wright PCS on YouTube. And you could go there and see many of our films. Okay. Awesome. I'll include that in the, in the notes. Since we're talking about mental health, how do you how do you stay mentally strong? You know, because you're dealing with a lot of challenges. Being an administrator, being a leader, I'm sure you come up come against or have to confront a lot of various issues. Deal with a lot of personalities, and there's just kind of a certain level of stress that may come with being in your position. <laughs> how do you stay mentally strong? What are your go-to coping strategies? You know, I, I pray a lot. Uh, I talk to myself a lot. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> listen to music and I allow myself to, uh, one of my greatest ways of, of release is to, uh, is to go through my own thoughts and to allow my thoughts to work themselves through. And, it, and I don't really know the, the medical term for that, if there is one. I can create one, but uh, the the I I have allowed myself to distress de-stress by letting my thoughts play out and kind of working through my own thoughts with a nice a groove of music that soothes my soul and to and to work through that. I pray a lot and continuously understand what my mission is. One of the biggest things that I do is that I I I always I am thankful for challenges. When I pray, mm -hmm. I thank God for, for the challenges that are before me, because through challenges become gives you clarity. And a lot of times in challenges, I look for the good in the challenge rather than the bad. And, and most people uh, will take a challenge and, and let it falter, uh, you know, with them and falter with it. But me, I'll take the challenge and be thankful for it. For some reason, I have this challenge. What do I do? How am I going to get through this challenge? What am I learning through this challenge? Why is this challenge happening? 
more so more so the 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 why is it happening is always the latter because of the fact Mm -hmm. that that is something that's beyond my control so the others is how do i get through it what am i learning through it it's something that i could exert some more energy in and as i exert energy i'm able to overcome it i'm able to get through it so that's my relaxation method and that's how i've been able to cope Mm -hmm. awesome any fitness regimens I work out every day, always working out and and trying to stay a uh, moment and, and staying conscious in what I eat, conscious in and what I ingest in my body to ensure the best outcome is there and try to get as much rest as possible. So I'm a person that believes in naps. Awesome. I mean, that's, that's really all that that you're talking about is the hallmark of holistic wellness. I think it's uh, it's a necessary thing that sometimes we neglect, you know, in terms of just staying staying uh, strong, staying mentally strong, staying um, mindful of just good practices. Mm-hmm. So you have y'all have acquired this uh, state of the art, this extraordinary facility compound. I'm not sure what I should call it. Um, <laughs> Your campus, it, it looks amazing. So so talk to us a little oh, bit. Oh, it's about hot. It. I just want you to know it is hot. It is smoking <laughs> hot. The, I mean, the, the building is on fire. I mean, the kids, it's like, I'm so, I'm so rejoicing. I'm rejoicing so much that the kids have a state-of-the-art facility that is in downtown D.C. We are three blocks away from the Capitol. We are right on the mall. It is a, just a phenomenal place. We, we have a, a, a seven-story building. Uh, that has been fully renovated with state-of-the-art everything. It, we are right across from the forensic, the, the Metropolitan Forensic Lab. So our kids have an opportunity to have a partnership. We're partnering with the, the Metropolitan Forensic Lab. So they're going to go in and get to see things like cars that have been burnt up and crime scenes that they are all kinds of stuff on top of the journalism and media arts that our, our kids are getting the journalist side of it. They're on a hill where the news is all the time, so they're right in the middle of it. The media arts, where they're able to utilize their artistic views, we're blocked from a, uh, from the uh, United States Department of Education and across the street from the Constitution Center, where the Constitution lives. So we are right in the heart. Our kids is hot and smoking, and I just can't. It is it's amazing for them to be in this building. We're learning, and people who are diligent about learning. And and just a shout out to my staff, my team, my group of teachers are amazing. My administration are, are amazing. And this work cannot be done just through the work of, of Dr. Clark. It is done because I have some um, uh, amazing team that is from the custodian all the way uh, to my seat. These are amazing mm-hmm. people who believe in, in a clean building and a great cafeteria awesome food and the the librarian and just everybody plays an amazing part uh, in getting this thing done. And, and, and I couldn't say more. And and so we're able to get those results uh, because of these folks. Yeah. Yeah. As you, as you have uh, encapsulated that the teamwork makes the dream work. It's uh, it does take an, an amazing administrator to really see the, importance of everybody's role. Everybody has a part to play. And um, and it also, I would imagine, gives y'all a sense of almost a family environment, would you say? We are one family. And, and we believe that 
consistently. Our slogan is if it ain't Richard, it ain't right. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we, we are a family and we have a family aspect. And so it's like this, when we let you in our family, you got to show and prove. And uh, yes, we are really a team that works together. And, you know, titles aren't everything for us. You know, I may be the CEO and the founder, but if it's something going on outside on the block that's related to our kids, I'm on my way. You know, if it's whatever, whatever it needs, if it's something that's happening in the community related to our students, I'm on my way. So it's not about anything else. We are family. We are true family. And we believe in that. Mm, that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Well, we are at the um, rapid fire portion of our discussion. And so I'm going to ask you just some quick questions before we go, before we wrap it up. So we'll start off with what's your favorite book and why? $40 million of slaves. And it is my favorite book because I want those individuals who become professional athletes take care of their money and begin to invest back in the communities and to support schools wholeheartedly. Because if we create great scholars, we can continue to great, create uh, jobs and entrepreneurship and ownership for our community. Wow. Say that, say that title again. $40 million slaves. All right. I will definitely include that. Where is your favorite destination in the world? I don't really have a favorite destination, but I, I just love Jamaica. Okay. I, I, I've been to places all over the world, but Jamaica is my favorite, is my favorite of favorites. Okay. Where in Jamaica? I like Ocho Rios. Okay. Yeah. That has good memories for me. Yeah. Great place. Great place to relax. Great beaches. Great beaches, great food. And great food. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so if you could break bread with three influential uh, people, past or present, who would they be and why? I would love to break bread with Barack Obama, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. Oh, wow. That would... <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall for that one. That would be great. Looking back in retrospect, what would you tell your 18-year-old self about life? Stay focused. Don't waste your 20s. Make sure that you utilize every moment of your 20s for, uh, towards building the remaining part of your life. Mm. Good advice. Good advice. So talk to me about misconceptions quickly. What do people usually get wrong about you? That I'm arrogant, that I'm, a, that I'm, I know it all, that I don't listen to folks mm -hmm. or to anyone. Those are the characteristics that usually come with me. Mm -hmm. And so what's your response to folks that, that might project that or think that about you? I'm sorry that you're mistaken that confidence is mistaken as arrogance. If you, and, and to say that I know it all, if you knew me, you would know that I have mentors, which shows that I don't know it all because mm -hmm. I listen to folks. 
my other pieces that I believe in, in, in hard work at all costs to get to the results is what matters. All right. All right, leader. All right. And last question, if you could create a billboard for millions of people to see, what message would you put on it? You can't be the person who's determined to win. Mm. Wow. And on that note, Dr. Clark, it has been an extraordinary pleasure to have you and to talk to you just about, you know, your journey. Um, and I thank you. Thank you. And thank you for this podcast. You've been doing an amazing job. I look forward to you having millions of followers. Uh, continue the journey. Don't get discouraged. No matter what anyone says, believe in yourself and know that this mission is happening because you believe in it and so do others. Thank you so much. And, oh, and before I go, current, current projects and where can people follow you? Currently, I'm just in the midst of getting through this pandemic and making okay. sure that my school community is, is focused. I am working on a new book, but uh, I have not unveiled the details of the book yet. So that's something that will be happening in 2021. And folks can always reach out to me and follow me on Twitter at Dr. Marco Clark. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Marco Clark. You can like me on Facebook at Marco Clark. Or you can reach me at 860-997-6800. All right. Thank you so much. And I'll include that in the show notes. And again, thank you again and happy new year and 2021 and just best wishes and for just peace, love, prosperity, and new opportunities. And I thank you again. Thank you so much. What a great conversation I had with Dr. Marco Clark. So happy that he was able to be a guest and to share his story of overcoming. It really is an incredible testament to the resiliency and the power of the human condition. And I'm so thankful for all the work that he is doing and will continue to do at the Richard Wright Public Charter School for Journalism and Media Arts in Washington, D.C. And so speaking of Richard Wright, Richard Wright just happens to be one of my favorite writers. I grew up reading some of his work, and a lot of people don't know that Richard Wright was one of the first writers to really speak openly about what it means to be Black in America, to be marginalized, and to be impacted by systemic racism and oppression. He was an African-American novelist who also impacted and mentored other 20th century writers such as Ralph Ellison, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lorraine Hansberry, as well as the incomparable James Baldwin. Some of Richard Wright's notable works include Uncle Tom's Children, The Outsider, and of course, my two favorites, Native Son and Black Boy. So I just thought I'd share this. 
also please remember that for the rest of this month and throughout February, I will continue to amplify the voices and the accomplishments of HBCU alums and grads. So tune in. So if you like what you've been listening in terms of content, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, as well as if you want to reach out to me, if you have questions or if you have things you want to talk about uh, or want me to talk about, please reach out to me at interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. And I'll include that in the show notes as well as how to connect with Dr. Marco Clark. Again, I thank you listeners for your continued support and gratitude. It's been such a fun ride, a fun journey, and I look forward to episodes to come. So remember to to love on yourselves and love on your family members, practice good self-care, and until next time, be well and be blessed. (laughs) 